0: just want to say that I played the sponge game and I did not feel safe during that game. Okay. People were attacking me and getting me wet. <laughs> um, you know, we've been going through the book of uh, Genesis was what I've always wanted to do and, uh, done it a couple times and we're coming to the end of the life of, uh, really Joseph, really Jacob's family, really the nation of Israel. And, uh, I want to ask you a question as we get started this weekend. First, I want to give a shout out to the Roshek campus. Uh, How do you like your new floor? Hey, it looks really good. So uh, get down. uh, I want to encourage the folks here to get down there. And if you're at Roshek, enjoy it. Just don't tear it up, all right? Take care of it. No, I'm kidding. Um, I'm not really kidding, but I'm kind of kidding. But you know what I mean. Um, What does it mean when Jesus said to his disciples, come follow me? Simple enough. Come, follow me. Uh, but what did he mean? What did he mean? Uh, like, where does the rubber meet the road? What? What are? And and what we're gonna see is we're gonna pull just a couple of parts out of out of Genesis chapter fifty, and we're gonna see a little bit look a little bit at Joseph, and we're gonna see where does the rubber meet the road? What difference? What are a few things that were, are characteristics of people who are followers of Jesus? We would say that today. What's a Christ follower? What are some characteristics of a Christ follower? We'll be surprised because Joseph is demonstrating these things even before Jesus came. Uh, Genesis chapter 50, it's on page 43. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a chair Bible. And if you go to page 43, uh, you'll see the passage we want to look at. I'm going to start reading at verse 14. Of chapter 50. This is one of the key chapters of uh, the book of Genesis. Uh, In my mind, chapter 50 verse 20 is uh, theologically and uh, just historically such a key passage verse of scripture. Uh, Verse 14 of chapter 50. After burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who accompanied him. To his father's burial. But now that their father was dead. Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger. And pay us back. For the wrong we did him. They said. So they sent a message to Joseph. Before your father died. He instructed us to say to you. Please forgive your brothers. For the great wrong they did, you, did to you. For their sin. For their sin in treating you so cruelly. You don't think. I don't think Jacob ever said that. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves before Joseph. Look, we are your slaves, they said. They're absolutely desperate at this point. They are absolutely sure that Joseph is going to wreak vengeance upon them. And then notice that Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good, it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. No, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. Do you want to be more like Jesus? Our passage gives us some characteristics, three characteristics really, of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. The first characteristic is this, stay in your seat. Stay in your seat. What do I mean by that? Joseph makes an amazing statement to his brothers. He says to them, am I in the place of God? What does he mean by that? What is he saying there? Joseph was basically saying, I'm choosing not to take God's seat. It's not my job to judge you, to punish you, to get even with you. That's not my job. Now, putting ourselves in the place of God is at the heart of almost all of the problems that we have in our lives. When we take his seat. We do so to our own detriment. Well, how do you put, you say, well, I don't think I do that, Pastor. I mean, I sin and I'm not perfect, but I don't think I get into God's seat. Well, let me, let's just examine that a little further. How do we put ourselves into God's seat? Well, simply this one way we do it is we assume we know better than God what is best for us. You've never done that, have you? Have you ever done that? Have you been, God's, you're going down a road and then God says, okay, here's the road you're going on. You go, no, I know that's not a good road for me. It wasn't at the first temptation. Basically, what did God say to Adam and Eve? He said, you can have everything except that. Everything except that. <laughs> Everything except that. And what does the, the enemy, this serpent, say to them? God's holding out on you. Because he knows that when you get that, you will become like God. See, whenever we choose to disobey God's word, which was what Adam and Eve were doing, we put ourselves in the place of God. What the serpent wanted was simply wanted Adam and Eve to put themselves in his seat, and they obliged. In that sense, the serpent was right. They would be like God, but what does that mean? It means that they would be the final word for their own lives. They would choose their own destiny. They would choose their own fate, and they did. How's that working out for everyone? Not so well, right? So they were like God. They made their choice. They made their bed, and now we're sleeping. Isn't that interesting? They made their bed, but now we're sleeping in their bed too, right? And reaping the consequences of it. Um, They were the final... They were the final word for good or bad, right or wrong. See, whenever we choose what is right for us, rather than following God's word, we're putting ourselves in God's seat. So I ask you again, have you ever done that? Have you ever done that? Today, people will say, well, Pastor, the Bible is dated. It can't be trusted. We're far more enlightened than past generations so we must determine what is right for us today in an enlightened society based upon our cultural, our historical cultural perspective. We need to determine what's right or wrong. We can't trust this, this, this old book. It's too old to trust, right? But when we dismiss the Bible and we allow our current historical perspective and opinions to overrule it, we are putting ourselves in God's place. We are taking God's seat. Have you ever done that before? I think if we were honest, we could all raise our hands. See, we all have certain emotional, educational, social, psychological, and physical problems. But in the end, if we're honest, our deepest needs... Can only be met by God. There are things in this life that only God can heal. But when we give the book over and we say, No longer will I follow your word, I'll go my own way, we take ourselves away from the one solution, the one help that we need desperately for our problems. The point I want you to see is that our, your deepest needs can only be met. And your deepest problems can only be solved by God. And when you walk away from his word, you are walking away from your only source of health and strength. But we live in a world today within the Christian church that says this book can't be trusted. I'm, you know, I don't mind people who are outside of Christianity saying that. What bothers me are people who are inside of Christianity are saying that because it's like, yes, we're on a branch and we're cutting ourselves off the branch from the tree. And you go, do you see what you're doing? You know, it's like a Roadrunner cartoon. One day you're going to realize the branch is cut and you're just suspended in air and you have nothing. And uh, by the way, there are people who think that we are so enlightened today and we know so much today. Think about 80 years ago, some of the scientific beliefs and the medical beliefs and some of the things that were going on. You would cringe. At what was believed 80 years ago, what do you think is going to happen 80 years from now, 100 years from now, to some of the beliefs that we say, oh, this is rock solid? Probably future generations from us are going to cringe. You really believe that? What was wrong with you? The Word of God can be trusted, but when we, we say, you know, I know better than the Word of God, the minute we say that, we are putting ourselves in the seat of God, just like Adam and Eve, and I think the results are the same. Let me give you another one, because you say, well, Pastor, I don't think that's one that I generally do. We stress out over things with inordinate worry. Okay, now we hit a nerve, because none of us worries, right? <laughs> what is Worry? Excessive worry comes when we're absolutely sure of what has to take place and we're afraid God won't get it right. He's going to mess this one up. So we worry. We just can't trust him. That's what worry is. Worry is basically saying, God, I know you're God, you know, with a capital G. But here's the thing. I don't know whether I can trust you with my life. Have you noticed um, worry is kind of an acceptable sin? And by the way, it's a sin. You may have said, oh, it's a sin. I didn't even know it was a sin. Who classified it as a sin? I thought we could go around and worry. You know, when you say, I'm worried, say, oh, yeah, I'm worried, too. It's okay. We're all worried. I think worry is nothing more than passive rebellion. You won't trust God to be God in your life. That's what worry is. It's passive rebellion. It's the boutique sin. It's the acceptable one. It's the one, you, you know. You don't want to say, "Hey, I just went out and robbed a bank," right? You don't want to say that. You don't want to say, "I just ran an old lady over downtown today." You don't. You don't want to admit that, right? But but you could say, "But I'm worried," and people say, "Oh yes, of course, that's okay." Well, last time I checked, innocent. What if we were to get out of God's seat and say this, I would like this to happen in my life. And I'm not sure what really is best for me, but I'm willing to trust God instead. See, that's not worry. That's saying, I'm not sure, but I trust. I'm not sure, but I trust. When we worry, we are taking his seat. Let me give you one more. So, you, so, so the first sign of a, a faithful follower of Jesus Christ is they don't take his seat. And we take his seat all the time. I'm just giving you three examples. Uh, let me give you one more. We allow bitterness to fester in our hearts by keeping a grudge. Now, all I have to do is and you say, well, I don't think that's true. If that's true, that may be true. But ask somebody really close to you and say, is there somebody or something that I have been holding a grudge about? And probably if you're married, they go, really? You need to ask that question. Notice what uh, Paul says in Romans twelve nineteen, dear friends. Never take revenge, leave it to the righteous anger of God for the Scriptures say I will repay I will take revenge I will pay them back says the Lord. The question is how could Joseph ever forgive his brothers? They didn't think he was going to forgive them. They thought they were making up stories. Dad said if you do it he's going to be very angry with you from heaven, you know. No. They're they're doing all this stuff. They will make we'll be your slaves whatever just don't take out revenge. Jesus and Joseph says who am I? God? A couple things. Joseph saw that he was part of God's story. Remember, we talked about that last week. We think we're writing our story, but it's really God's story. and We fit into his plan and we see what he's doing. Secondly, he was able to let go of bitterness because he allowed God to be God. That was a big part of it. The biggest struggle we have is we're not willing to let God be God. We'll say, yes, we believe he's God, but just let me run my life. And he didn't leave his seat. Everyone who holds a grudge is sitting in God's seat. Did you know this, that only God has the knowledge and the ability to rightly judge anyone? (laughs) You know, but one of the things, the problem is, the reason, we want to get revenge on a person. But here's the thing, we're not fair. Because we're emotionally tied into it. That's why we have judges, by the way. We have judges in courts, hopefully, that are unbiased. We call them unbiased because they're looking at both sides and they're saying, I can judge this because I'm not emotionally attached to it. And if a judge is emotionally attached to it, he'll probably say, I must recuse myself from this because I'm too close to this and I can't call it. You are a horrible person to judge somebody when you're emotionally connected to it. You don't know what to do. You'll do the wrong thing, probably. Only God, only God has the right, but he's, only, only God has the power to judge without becoming evil. See, that's the problem with holding a grudge and judging. We become evil. If you nurse your anger, you'll become evil yourself. You'll become hard-hearted and cold. You will become self-centered, and you'll nurse the self-pity. You'll be, you'll become thinking about just yourself and what wrong was done to you. And you 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 put yourself in a prison. It's dark and it's a it dungeon. If you've ever ridden, read uh, Paradise Lost by John Milton, he, the concept he has is this. And I kind of wrote it down just because it makes sense to me. Maybe it will help you. The fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. The fastest way to become like God is to refuse to be God. But the opposite is true. The fastest way to become like Satan is to become God. So get out of his seat. Faithful followers of Jesus... When they see themselves sitting in his seat, they jump out of it like it's a hot seat. They say, oh, I shouldn't be here. And we, I've just given you three. There's, we, we could sit down and we could talk about a lot more. Let God be God. Get out of his seat. Secondly, uh, faithful followers look and they see the hand of God. They see the hand of God. Perspective is so critical in this life. How are we to make sense of the trouble and the trials and the tribulations that, that we run into in life? It's a natural part of life. Every day something happens to people we know, maybe to us. And what, how do we make sense of it? Uh, there's two basic views that people have some are optimistic about life they would say life is generally good it's generally good and every now and then there's a little hiccup there's a little problem but generally life is good it's it's uh, it, life is good then there's people on the opposite side of the the the, the spectrum and they would say life is generally bad and generally, it, it's always bad. And now and then there's something good. And there's probably something not so good about whatever good is. Um, it's the, you've seen the, the Winnie the Pooh, right? Right. And there were two people in particular in Winnie the Pooh. There was Eeyore, the donkey. And it was, there was always something wrong. The glass was always half empty, Right. Eeyore, it was a sunny day, oh, we're going to get sunburned, you know? I mean, it was all, there was always something wrong with whatever it was. It was, oh, well. And then there was Tigger, right? Tigger's bouncing around, he's happy-go-lucky. Nothing could knock this kid. What was he, a little piglet? Yeah, yeah. Not, nothing could, you know, he's bouncing around, having a good time, and, 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 you know, that's the view some people have in like their piglets or their their eeyores running around. And, you know, not nobody's, you know, we in general, we're not at one end of the extreme or the other, but we generally lean towards one or the other. But here's the problem. People have raised a dilemma for Christians, and they've said, you know, the problem with the Christian faith, one of the biggest problems with the Christian faith is we have bad things. We have evil. We have things in the world that just aren't right. And if we had a good and loving God, he wouldn't allow this. So the argument goes like this. God is either good and powerless. In other words, he's good. He wants to do something to change the world, but he can't. He's just not powerful enough to do it. That's one side. The other side is, no, he's able to do something, but he chooses not to, which makes him evil. And they say, that's it. That's the dilemma. That's the the moral dilemma that you have, that you Christians have. By the way, it's not the moral dilemma that Christians have. It's the moral dilemma that every person on this planet has if they believe in a higher power. How do we explain the problem of evil? How do we do that? It's a dilemma. It's a problem. See, God is either good and powerless or he's uh, powerful and evil. So it's, it's, it basically what they're saying is people are saying it's an either or. He's either this or he's that. But you know what? Joseph blows that all up. Because you know what Joseph says to his brothers? It's both and. The world is bad. Evil sometimes. (laughs) He said to his brother, you bet it for evil. (laughs) But God is still good. It's not either or, it's both and. That's Joseph's solution to the dilemma. His solution to the dilemma is that it's not either or. It's not God is either good and can't do anything or he's evil and he can do something. Basically, what Joseph's solution is and what he says is there's evil, there's bad days, there's bad things. But you know what? God is still good. God is still good. Verse 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so that I could save the lives of many people. Now, Joseph essentially is saying, if you could put words in his mouth, he's saying, my life has been really difficult and disappointing at times. And you, brothers, are directly responsible for that. But God is good. He had a plan all along, a good plan, a saving plan. Now, Joseph gets to see how it all plays out. We don't often get to see how the plan is going to play out. See, Joseph isn't dismissing evil. He characterizes the deeds of his brothers against him as evil. Evil is real, not an illusion. And life is filled with heartache. But God is always good. That's the problem. Scripture holds those two in tension, that life is hard. Jesus says in the world you'll have tribulation. It's not going to be easy. There's bad people and evil things, and that happens. But God is still good. That's the tension there. God is good, even when it takes years, centuries, until the last day to see it. We may never find out what God is doing this side of heaven. Our struggle, though, is trusting God and being okay with Him. It's seeing His hand. It's trusting His hand. Can you imagine if? Uh, and I just this just dawned on me. And maybe it's a throw it out. If it's a bad idea, just say, "Well, I'm throwing that out. It's a bad idea." Can you imagine that uh, you are able to um, stay awake if you wanted to? Yeah, let's say you have to. And the surgeon is going to do surgery on your heart. And you're wide awake and you're able to see what they are doing, he or she is doing on your heart. And you're at a place where you can't move and you can't do anything and you just have to trust the surgeon and they're doing the dialogue saying okay this is the tricky part you know you go man I hope they get that right you know it's like uh so that's kind of what it is like with God sometimes we're we're in a real precarious position and we just have to say God I trust you because I don't really have a choice well you do have a choice but it's not a good choice and some people have taken that choice They walked away from God and they walked away from his word and they think that they've made their lives better and easier. And they've walked away from hope and they walked away from healing and they walked away from help. Joseph uh, was letting God sit in his seat. Um, There's a point where Joseph came to a place where he realized that he wasn't God And I think God got a hold of Joseph's heart, and Joseph was humbled. He had to be humbled because he was a pretty proud teenager. He was humbled, but he was also willing to trust God and see the hand of God. Let me give you the third one, the third characteristic. Okay? Third characteristic is you love your enemies. love your enemies. Even Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, Love your enemies. Do good to those who do evil against you. Uh, Notice he says in verse 21, Don't be afraid. I will care for you and your children. Uh, Luke chapter 6 says this, But to you who are willing to listen, I say to you, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who hurt you. So Joseph is imaging God's love. Can we do that? Can we say, God, as the way, in the way that you are loving me, I will love others. I will love my enemies, even if they don't deserve it. Because they probably don't. The reason he's able to love his brothers in spite of what they did is because he was staying in a seat and he knew that no matter what God, no matter what God was working all things out. You see, the reason that he could forgive was because the first two fell into place. He wasn't going to get into God's seat and he saw God's hand. And when you can put those two together, you can you can have an incredible compassion and forgiveness and, and not play judge and do all those things. See, when you can trust God by staying in your seat, showing humility, and when you can trust God to handle things in the best possible way, showing confidence, then you're able to allow God to be God in your life. See, Joseph knew that God was taking care of him, even though he didn't deserve it. And I believe that he was humbled and he was confident. He was humbled in a sense to know that God had a plan and was going to use him in this plan. But I think he was also confident because he could see God's hand. Joseph came to a place where he realized and he was humbled because he was forgiven by God. You know, at, at some point you go, well, Joseph was great. I can't be Joseph. No, you can't. You can't be Joseph. You're right. You can be better than Joseph. You can Jesus said let me read you a passage. This is Matthew chapter 11, 11. I tell you the truth, all who have ever lived, he's talking about John the Baptist, none is greater than John the Baptist. Okay, that would include Joseph, as far as I'm sure, Moses, Abraham, Daniel, David. Um, and Jesus is saying John the Baptist is better than all of them. But then he goes on and he says, yet even the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he is. John was better than Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, David, and Daniel. The least in the kingdom of heaven is better than them. How is that possible? What's Jesus saying? John and Joseph had a general understanding of God's redemptive plan. Joseph had a very limited view. John had a better view. He was the forerunner of the Messiah, right? So progressively, we see more and more how God is going to redeem the world through His Son. And John says, here is the Messiah. Here He is. But where are we? We've seen Him live a perfect life, the life we should have lived, die on a cross, rise on the third day. So we're even further down the road as far as information. We see the whole plan. We have it all right here. Right here we have the whole redemptive plan of God from Genesis to Revelation where God is going to start in a garden and he's going to end in a paradise, a garden. So Jesus would say that the least in the kingdom of God today is, has greater knowledge and greater ability than, than, than any of the, the fathers that came before us. We have it all. We have the full gospel. We have the complete revelation from God in his word. We're able to forgive. We're able to, to let God judge our enemies. We're able to let God work in our lives, even when it looks bad, knowing He is going to work it all out for good in the end. Why? Because we have example after example after example about how God has always been faithful, of a track record. We talked about the book of Hebrews last weekend. Because we have, an account, we have an account of how far God will go to accomplish His plan of redemption for us. We know how far God would go to save us by sending His only Son. We know how far Jesus would go by giving His life so that we could live. How much more do we need from Him to trust Him with our lives? I want to close with the passage. Many scholars believe this was an early hymn of the church. And you know it well, Philippians 2, speaking of Jesus, verse 6. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave And was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form. He humbled himself in obedience to God. And died a criminal's death on the cross. He gave his life for you. He got off of his throne in heaven. And he came to earth. And he climbed up on a cross. And he says I love you this much. Can we trust him? That's really what it comes down to. Can we trust Him? And so, faithful followers of Jesus simply wake up every day and say, God, I don't know what today holds, but I know you hold today. And I'll trust you. Even though I may not see how it's all going to play out in my lifetime, I will trust you. I will forgive. I will not play judge. I will not worry. If I am worrying, I'll catch myself and I'll say, no, 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 no. I'm not going to get in your seat. That's your seat. That's not mine. That's what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Can you do it? Go to Scripture, look to the cross, and you will get all the motivation and encouragement, the ability, the desire to do what God's called you to do as one of his faithful followers. Stand with me. Let's pray. So, Father, this is not something we can do in and of our own power or ability. We need your encouragement, your help, your record, your word, your spirit. We need, Father, to be empowered and controlled by your Holy Spirit. We need to look at your word and recall how faithful you are. We need to see how devoted you are to us that you sent your only son and that jesus you gave your life for us help us to trust you father even when we don't understand thank you that we don't live in an either or world but a both and it is a difficult world it is evil it is painful it is harmful it is Filled with tribulation and trouble. But you are still good. We trust you. We thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen.